Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm bringing you a conversation with Gary Hobbs. Gary is a native of the Pacific Northwest, where he still resides just outside Portland, Oregon. It has been his home and professional base his entire life, with the exception of two and a half years in the 70s when he was on tour with the Stan Kenton Orchestra. Since then, Gary has stayed busy performing in the Seattle and Portland areas, as well as nationally and internationally with jazz greats such as Anita O'Day, Randy Brecker, and Eddie Harris. Gary also teaches at the University of Oregon and is in demand for jazz clinics and camps around the world. We just celebrated our 100th episode of Working Drummer Podcast, and if you haven't checked it out yet, Matthew Krauss presented a roundtable discussion with some Nashville drummers, including Kevin Murphy, Ben Caesar, Billy Freeman, Tucker Wilson, Kyle Wilkerson, Keo Stroud, Will Easterwood, Rob Mitchell, and Jeff Brown. It was a hilarious and insightful hour-and-a-half hang, and I highly recommend you check it out. We all love vintage gear, and I bet you know someone that owns an old Les Paul or maybe a 56 Fender Strat that never leaves the home, and the question is, why do we love this gear? It looks cool, it gives you that warm, handcrafted tone, and often brings a unique vibe to the music. Of course, it has its limitations, and if we're talking drums, we run into problems like its fragility, limited tuning... So where am I going with this? Well, once again, I went back out to KHS America in Mount Juliet, Tennessee to spend some time with some vintage gear. I'm talking about the Sonar Vintage Series Kit. I had seen and heard these at Summer NAM, but now I had a little one-on-one with these beautiful drums. Some specs you should know that make these drums uh, a modern vintage kit. The shells are that hand-selected premium German beach shell with rounded bearing edges. Keep in mind, this comes from the same forest of beechwood trees that were used in the manufacturing of sonar drums from the 1960s. The recreated teardrop lugs are a big deal. They look and feel just like the original, but now it has sonar's exclusive tune-safe system. In other words, they stay in tune. There are many beautiful finishes you can choose from, like the Vintage Pearl and my favorite, the Red Oyster. It looks, sounds, and feels like a vintage kit, but maintains the quality and reliability of a modern kit. You could really call this a modern vintage kit. So go to us.sonar.com to learn more about the vintage series and find a dealer near you. So this was a great talk with Gary. We talk a little bit about his mentor, John Von Olin, who is a lesser known but hugely influential drummer and educator in the jazz world. And he has some kind of tough love observations about the jazz community, especially about how it should be moving past the types of venues it has inhabited for the past few decades and how even at age 68, he doesn't want to be a backward looking jazz musician. So here we go. Hope you enjoy Gary Hobbs. Well, I just want to start with where you're from and, and where you live, because I think you're the first uh, drummer that we've had on the podcast that is, is from the Pacific Northwest and, and still lives and works in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about, about your, uh, your place of origin. Well, my place of origin is actually one block south of where I am right now. I grew up a, a block away from where I ended up living. That's amazing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Vancouver, Washington is where I live. It's about two miles from the Columbia River, which separates Oregon from Washington. So I'm about six, seven miles from Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Vancouver, left for quite a few years going to school and then also traveling, playing music. And then when uh, I got married and had a daughter, we moved back here because quality of life and also at that time in uh the late 70s, the music scene uh, in Portland was abnormally great for a smaller, smaller big city. So uh, that's why I came back and it was, it was not, I didn't sacrifice anything. The players were great, the gigs were plentiful, uh, a very creative atmosphere. So um, that's why I ended up back here. Yeah, and, and quality of life is a, a recurring theme on, on this podcast. Uh, we, we try to make it a point to, to interview drummers who are in places other than New York and L.A., and we interview a lot of Nashville guys where the, the cost of living is very low. But 
you know, I live in Atlanta, you live near Portland. Uh, we both have ties in Kansas City. Um, there are all of these other great cities around the country that have, you know, incredible music scenes and uh, where you can own a house and have a driveway. And uh, Yeah, it's that's true. When I was out uh, with uh, Stan Kenton's band for two and a half years or so, I went to every state except Hawaii, and we traveled 48 weeks of the year. So I saw so many different cities, big and small, and kind of started figuring out what I enjoyed the most, what vibe was uh, most conducive. And, and like, you know, New York or something, uh, after nine days, I'd get kind of tight, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. L.A. had its own thing. And, you know, those are the big centers, but uh, it just was something that wasn't really attractive as far as feeling good about it. Right, right. Um, so your your dad was a drummer, right? As was my grandfather, yes. Oh, so you it's in the family. Family curse. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, did you did you start taking lessons with him when you were a little kid? Or no? Uh, by the time my father, uh, by the time I was born, my dad was a recreational player. He was a manager of the Chamber of Commerce in my hometown here. He was very, very much a, a public figure, very visible, and music was a, a big love, but he, by that time uh, he had not played in quite a while. I didn't start playing until my senior year of high school. Oh, wow. So uh, I, I was a product of his uh, musical tastes in that I listened to his records constantly uh, as background music, you know, and he was very much a, a swing guy, like uh, Krupa, Cozy Cole, Don Lamont, Davey Tuff, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those kind of cats. He, he, he loved them. And when I decided I wanted to start playing the summer prior to my senior year, he was very excited about it. He, mm -hmm. he had uh, always kind of hoped that I would do it. I tried it once in like sixth grade or something, and they had me playing on one of those little cheese practice pads, and they just wasn't happening. So when I decided I wanted to play, we got Grandpa's drums out of the basement, put them up in the front room by the stereo, and he gave me his old records, and that's how I learned to play, playing with those, and then the music that my peers listened to, a lot of rhythm and blues and stuff. So. Uh, that's, that was my father's input was, and then he, he said, you know, here's how you hold the sticks. And he taught me four on the floor, which later ended up being both good and bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he gave me his perspective and then just said go. And then he would check, you know, uh, he would, uh, during the summer, right before I started playing in the, in the high school bands and stuff, uh, he would come home at lunch a lot and check on my progress and I was without even knowing it playing uh six eight hours a day wow. just because it took me over and he'd say how's it going with like this Woody Herman record or something I go well you know this is okay but what do you do here and yeah. give that kind of input but he never was a technician teacher right so your senior year in high school like for for someone who has spent his entire adult life as a professional drummer your senior year in high school is pretty late in the game to get started, I think. Was, oh, absolutely. Was there a plan before that? Like, were you on some other, like, I'm going to go to college for this other thing, and then drumming grabbed you? Uh, yeah. I mean, well, I didn't have a lot of focus, to be honest with you. <laughs> what, what I thought I would do, I kind of came from a, from a jock background. I played a lot of sports. My dad was also a very good athlete, and so I'm an only child, and he and I played ball you know football basketball baseball and so i started playing little league and played varsity ball through high school and stuff mm -hmm. uh so i thought i was going to be like a, when i went into college i had a double major music education and health pe and recreation i thought i might uh i worked for parks and recreation as a playground director and that kind of stuff so i thought i might get into that or coaching or those were my, my thing. But when the music took over, which it literally did, it just it just took over. Yeah. I also I played in this R and B band uh called Little Curtis and the Blues, and we were uh like the hit band in this whole county. We were the stars, you know. 
And I loved that, the, the social part of it and meeting girls and just hanging. And we played a lot of Sam and Dave, uh, Otis Redding, James Brown, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And then later Hendrix. And so it was a social uh, thing that pulled me in also. But the buzz you got from playing, just the, the, the physical high you got from it. So um, was it in was it in college that you studied with John von Olin? I uh, I went to a, a college out here in Gresham, Oregon, which is just east of Portland, called Mount Hood Community College, mm-hmm. and uh, it was in its very earliest stages. But we were we were good. We we just had some good players and great teachers, mm-hmm. uh, d- director teachers. I didn't have any private instructors. Uh, we won a festival that was a regional thing for a. a N-A-J-E, which later became I-A-J-E. Right. So we won the uh, collegiate representation from the Northwest to go back East. And I, I was the outstanding musician of that festival, which was a scholarship to a Kenton camp in Springfield, Missouri. Okay. And VO, VO was where Von Olen, John Von Olen was playing drums on the, on the Kenton band then. That whole week, he just hung with me and... Uh, He's the one that convinced me to play professionally. At that, up to that point, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Wow. What did, so what did, what, did he, what did he say or do that kind of switched it in your brain, like, I can do this for a living? He, he's, well, he told me if I didn't do it, I can't remember his exact words, but basically, if you don't do it, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he said I had a, he felt I had a, um, uh, it, was nece- it was a necessity for me to do it. He thought I had a calling or something. Yeah. He's a real interesting man and kind of a spiritual cat in his own way. And I think he, was, he saw that, that it was a part of me that I hadn't really let out yet because I didn't have confidence. So um, he just said, you, you've got to do it. You, you just have to keep. His whole thing was keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. And as a byproduct, Kenton wasn't at that camp. He was, uh, he was in the hospital. He had some kind of a, a health problem. So, uh, but John and some of the other guys in that band kept my name in the hopper. And then after uh, a period of time, then they called me. So it, that my encounter with John pushed me in the right direction. He, he was about sound and feel and uh, kind of like honesty and playing, no flashy stuff. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, this is which, great. I, I wanted you to talk about Von Olin a little bit because he's kind of a lesser known figure in in drumming, but there are so many backstories like yours, like so many drummers cross paths with Von Olin at some point. It's it's unbelievable. I was gonna I was gonna force the issue of, of talking because <laughs> he's really a very important man. Uh, Jeff Hamilton and I are very good friends from back in the seventies when he used to play with Woody's band, and mm-hmm. he has a deep deep tie. Uh, with John, and so he and I talk about it a lot. Todd Strait, yep. He, he's like it's funny because he he told me like he's like ten years or so younger that mm-hmm. I inspired him to play professionally. Todd Strait said that. Yeah, when I wow. when he went to a Kenton camp that I was on, and so he's a direct connection to John von Olin, even if he didn't know it. Wow. <laughs> And we've talked about, uh, he and I have talked about that quite often. Mm-hmm. But Jeff and I, uh, every time we talk, there's a lot of, you know, pitching crap back and forth. That's just our, our thing. Yeah. But the serious talk is all about Von Allen. did <laughs> everything. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've talked to Jeff about it, but he talks about his first encounter with John and how John just said, look, forget doing this and that. If you want me to help you, you're going to do this, that mm-hmm. kind of and it was a life-changing thing for Jeff. For me, it was the same thing, except I didn't have to unlearn my priorities so much because I didn't have any. <laughs> my direction was very scattered. Right. John liked the way I felt, and he liked the way I hit the you know the way I hit the drums. Mm-hmm. He liked um, just certain parts of my conceptual playing that really weren't advanced. He kind of saw them underneath the the roughness, I think, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he was just always very uh, an advocate. I would talk to him an awful lot on the telephone way back. He would always answer. He, he would answer the phone when it wasn't in the refrigerator. He'd <laughs> stuff like that. 
But if you called him on such and such day in Sunman, Indiana, you could catch him and he would talk about all these abstract conceptual things. Never talked about paradiddles. Yeah. Never talked about roles. Never talked about anything except concepts and, and that stuff, which is, I think, the most important part. Right. He he strikes me. I mean, I never met him, um, but he, he strikes me as the kind of educator who, who brings out the essence of each individual player. Like, he helps you kind of find what you are at your core and, and develop that as far as your concept and your sound and... I totally agree. I think that's his magic. And he's the most unassuming guy. If you tell him anything about what he did to affect you or somebody else, he just, he, he can't accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he just trying to pass stuff on. I, I, I really recommend if you haven't read his book called it's got a swing. It uh-huh. just came out. Uh, it's wonderful. It's only about that thick. And it's, uh, a, a, I think the guy's name is Jim Nunn that wrote it. We can get that later, but it's got a swing, and it, it talks about John's whole life and his excursions and very deep and interesting existence. Mm-hmm. And he's a unique man with a, a unique gift of being able to, to help people. and be. He helps your self-confidence and your soul, and just that's what he did for me. How old were you when you got the call from uh, Stan Kenton? Well, there were two calls, actually. Uh, after I left Mount Hood College and went to that uh, camp, that Kenton camp, the following year I started at a, at Central Washington University. Uh, right at, at that summer, I think it was, I uh, got a call to go out on Stan's band. Mm-hmm. This was uh, Von Olin had split a guy named Jerry McKenzie from Detroit. There were two different Jerry McKenzies. This was the Detroit one, had been playing. And uh, he, he was going to leave, and they called me, and I was in the Army Reserve Band. And we had just gone down to Fort Ord, California, for summer camp, which is two weeks. It was the first day, and you had to be real Army for these two weeks. Right, right. So I told this guy that I'd been called, and I needed to, to go and, you know, and he said no. <laughs> and so uh, I called back. I said, I can't. They won't let me go. And so Dick Shear, the higher fire guy, said, well, he says, look, we're going to give this 18-year-old kid a chance. And probably after a couple of weeks, you know, it'll be okay. So, well, that was Erskine. Right. So, I was going to say that 18-year-old was Erskine. <laughs> so three years later, <laughs> when I got the second call which was actually, without a doubt, the best thing for everybody concerned. Pete was, even though younger than I, very much more advanced and just an incredible drummer, of course. So it was good for him. And for me, it was good because at at Central Washington, my band director, John Mowad, was a drummer and loved everything. The direction I was going in was what he wanted to do. So he was extremely supportive. In the three years I was there at Central, uh, he picked tons of music, Kenton music, Kenton-ish music, uh, because the band was incredible for college, you know, great ensemble. So the trumpets could play all this stuff, you know, and everybody else. So I had three years of being groomed by a teacher who knew exactly what I needed to do to be prepared for what I thought I was. They told me they were going to call me back and stand right. to me that. And so I, I just took him for his word. And, and this guy prepared me. I couldn't read when I got up there. He made me, I mean, he was brutal, <laughs> the, the weaknesses I had. And he uh, was the drum teacher also. So he, he addressed all those things. So uh, that's what happened with that one. Well, it's, it's interesting and cool how, uh, you know, I've, I've heard so many stories and I've had a bunch of experiences where you get a call and for whatever reason you can't do it. And you're like, damn, that, that might have been the only shot I ever get at that. But, man, people keep your name around. Like if they, if they want you bad enough, they will remember you. Yeah. And, and, you know, it might not be the last time you get the call. So I, right. you know, I, I just got to remind myself sometimes that if I, you know, if I miss it one th- one time, I might, I might get another shot. It's not, you know, hopeless. Oh, absolutely. And I was also, this was on, on Von Olin's suggestion and my father's suggestion. 
anytime Kenton's band was within, you know, three hours of where I was, I would drive over and and check them out. So I was a, a presence. I tried not to be a nuisance. Right. But you know, you're, and these are the things that I try to pass on to to younger people. How to? That's a juggling act. You don't want to be. You don't want to be a giant pain, but well, you, you want put it. To, you put it perfectly. Be a presence without being a nuisance. Yeah, uh, I, I so. And it's it's a fine line to walk, and it, it kind of you kind of got to read the scene you're in to figure out where that where that line is. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, the, just the concept of kind of staying around, showing up in front of people, showing your face, and letting everybody know you're still around really goes a long way. Totally, absolutely. Um. How long did you spend on the road with Stan Kenton? Uh, about two and a half years. Wow, like 48 weeks a year. Yeah, that's back at the tail end of that kind of a, an existence. And I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. A lot of the guys were, we were younger cats. A lot of the bands back then, like, you know, all, there were still traveling bands like Stan and Woody and Maynard and uh, Basie's band. Lynn Biviano had a band that Steve Smith played in. Uh, there was a whole bunch of opportunities to travel he didn't make tons of money but usually drummers and lead players like lead trumpet lead alto they'd make a couple more bucks mm-hmm. uh but you did it just because it, well it was you got to play every night you yeah know? yeah it, and it was a chance to be on a couple of records too right oh absolutely i was on when I left Stan's band, I was on three Kenton albums now I'm on like nine because <laughs> of legs and stuff right but it was a, it, it was back uh, for into the '40s and stuff. For all the, the Kenton bond that you get of brotherhood wasn't just for the guys you played with. I ended up playing with Bud Shank and Connie Condoli and some of these other great names. Bill Perkins from my dad's time, you mm-hmm. know, they played on Stan's band, and if you were one of those brothers, they they pulled you in, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So. The, the that experience and that camaraderie that you get from uh, living on a bus, driving around. We had two weeks off over Christmas, two weeks off at, uh, for summer, wow. and the rest of them you just drove around and played almost seven nights a week. Wow! You felt it's a whole other level of feeling cruddy. You don't even know. <laughs> it. You, you just don't. But but it was so wonderful. I mean, I, I I'm so. I'm frustrated for the the young people that I work with that are incredible players. Mm-hmm. Some guy that's like a could go out and play killer third trumpet, right? Can't do anything now, right? You know, or you could go out and make a reasonable living, get all this experience playing in different environments every night, playing when you're sick, when you hate the guy sitting next to you, <laughs> uh, doing all those things. There's only one way to do it, and yeah. that's to do that. So, uh, I was an unbelievably lucky position when I got that. Um, it's, it's funny. You mentioned that, that, uh, nobody really does that kind of touring anymore. Uh, and to, for the most part, you're right, but, uh, I'm getting ready in March to do like a two month run with a big band called the Equinox Orchestra. And it's not like an 18 piece or a 20 piece like Kenton. It's like 11 piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a two month run with, you know, a couple little breaks in there, but I've, I'm, I'm excited about it cause I've never done anything like it. Um, I've done some traveling, a little bit of touring, but being out for a long stretch like that, mm-hmm. um, is I think an experience that every musician should have in some way, whether it's with a rock band or a big band or a, a musical. I totally agree. There's so many cats that, that young people, and I, I, I say young, it's, it's a relative term. I mean, I'm. <laughs> I'm old, old, old. I don't feel that way, but I'm I'm like 68. You know, to me that's old. <laughs> old guy. I mean, like Dave Weckl to me is young. <laughs> Him, he and Chad Wackerman used to go to Kenton camps when they were in ninth grade. Right. And so I've known them as little boys. You know. Right. right. Now I just did a thing over in China with Dave. You know, and he's he's got gray hair and all this. You know. I so know, man. He's the cats that are. Uh, 20 and then the guys that are in 40 you know so but the the younger people that don't have that experience some of them go through they'll get they're great and they're motivated and they go through and get their bachelors 
Then they get their masters. Right. And some of them go on and get their doctorates mm-hmm. and they never do any gigs. <laughs> I mean, really, they don't. They, they don't have gigs. I know. There's no road work for them, but there's not even work like, like a, you know, Holiday Inn top 40 gigs. Right. It was a big thing. A lot of guys I went to college with that didn't get the opportunity to play in jazz bands or whatever were really, really good and they wanted to play music and make a living. So they'd work six, seven nights a week, playing four nights or four hours a night, make good money, mm-hmm. and do it for years on end, sitting in one place. Yeah. There's a whole other way to get your stuff together, you know. Yeah. That repetition, repetition. But on the road, the ingredient that is different is the the torture of travel, and that you're playing for a different audience every night, not the same thirty people that come out and see you in your hometown. Right. So. More power to you, man. I, I, I'm sure you'll love it. You know, <laughs> you know I, some people don't know in the moment how lucky they are that they get an opportunity like that. Mm-hmm. Or like we had in the older times, you know. Luckily, I did. I mean, I, I really, the whole time I was counting my blessings, I really did. I just, I couldn't believe it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved back here to have the this Portland scene happening so it was such a great scene for so long where I was playing seven nights a week anytime I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to do casual subbing and stuff, I could work two, three gigs a day, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So I've never taken it for granted. I've always been very like, God, I can't believe my luck, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Talking about the road experience, like it's it's so much less common than it was when you were coming up. Can you think of, and I know you do a lot of teaching, can you think of a of a way that students can can get like a similar seasoning without having the road experience that you had? To be totally honest, no. If if you want that experience, specifically that ex- experience, what I just mentioned, those you know about playing for different people, and the the part about the consistency you get from no matter how you feel, no matter how you're getting along with your comrades, whatever. The, the professionalism that you get from just saying, okay, I'm playing, that stuff's history, I've got to do this. Right. You right. Elevate your game, and if you really care about your playing, you will never want those things to interfere. You always want to get better every time, mm-hmm. every single time. So you can't get that experience. You can't simulate that experience. I do my best to get guys to play with one another, listen to one another, uh, support each other, this mm-hmm. kind of thing. But the audience of regular Jobo, uh, you know, the regular public, especially for these guys that are in their late teens, mid twenties, up to there, that audience, there's not a jazz audience per se, right. you know, as such. Uh, when I was doing it, it was it was the end of the jazz times. I mean, we it was already on its way down if you really look at it, right. Uh, but there was still holdovers. There were guys my age that had listened to their parents' music, mm-hmm. and they could dig it. And then a few that would go into the 70s, 80s, 90s a little bit. But then the farther away you get, the less familiar that music is. It's not that people don't like it. They just don't connect with it. I asked my students, how many of your friends that aren't musicians have anything to do with spang zang lang spang lang spang lang None of them. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Yeah, what it is, you know. Yeah, what you learn from studying jazz drumming, and if you really work at it hard, you will be qualified to play. I think virtually anything. Mm-hmm. So there's the beauty, and it's like the way people used to train in classical music to play jazz. Right, jazz is kind of a classical foundation now. And you go in there and you really work hard. Uh, you listen, you know, Ed Sof down at UNT. Mm-hmm. Look at the billions of great guys that he's turned out that could yeah. play all sorts of music. And he taught them mainly jazz playing mm-hmm. and musical drumming, of course. Right. So, you know, the, the the experience that you get from that traveling cannot be duplicated. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it really can't. And the experience of playing five nights a week in an Elks club. Right. <laughs> still, it's, it's still a discipline. Mm-hmm. If you're playing some real wallpaper music stuff, you go, okay, I'll learn to do this. I, I had a sit-down gig in Portland with a four-piece original music fusion band, a guy named Tom Grant, 
really great musician. He used to play with Joe Henderson, Tony Williams, mm -hmm. a bunch of cats. And we were writing our own music uh, and became successful. A huge hit in Portland. And Tom's name went on. He was a big, smooth artist. And I got, you know, I had a big old Yamaha recording. I got it over here, a big, uh, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14, 16, 20 symbols are everywhere. Yeah. Because I didn't have to move them for three years. They just, <laughs> we were five nights a week in this club. Wow. Didn't, and I got bored, though. So I start playing left-hand lead. You know, like a lot of guys, they call it open now. Mm -hmm. I just, that like, what the heck? That Lenny White and Billy Cobham were big influences to me, and they could do that. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I've played this tune 5,000 times. Let's do it this way. You can do the same thing with Satin Doll playing in an Elks Club. Or if you play weddings every night or something, there's always something you can practice. But that repetition of, of having to rise to the occasion every night and play like four hours, that's a lot different than two hours or one set. Yeah. Uh, it's a totally different ballgame. And you're, you're touching on something I think about a lot, which is the, the jazz-centricness of, of college music programs. Um, and I think... Uh, a lot of a lot of students and faculty make the mistake of not applying all of that training to the rest of music. I think a lot of students come up through college studying jazz, being immersed in it, doing the deep dive into the art form, and thinking that when they get out of school, this is what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, and I mean, hats off to you if that's what you really want to do and you find a way to make it work. But I, I think a lot, of, a lot of colleges do a disservice, or maybe a students do, do a disservice to themselves in not translating that training to other ways to make a living. I totally, a thousand percent agree. I teach at the University of Oregon. Steve right. Owen is the guy that is the head of our department. A couple of years ago in spring, right before school was almost out, every Thursday, all the music majors get together in a room and, you know, all the, the teachers, and then if there's somebody coming through town, they'll bring them in, like Branford Marsalis or something, they'll do like a master class, or sometimes they all play transcriptions, but it's, you know, everybody there. Steve walks in this one day and makes every major stand up and say what they're going to do with their degree. Hmm. It was deep. I mean... I'm just sitting there going, whoa. Soon as the room, you could feel it. As soon as he asked the question, it was like hushed more. <laughs> a couple of guys got up and crashed and burned. And then you see people kind of fidgeting. This one guy I thought was going to really start crying. He was, I think everything hit him at one time. <laughs> and I saw another guy say, you could see that he was all self-confident. You know, he had it down. So it gets to him. And says, well, what I'm going to do is go into the studios. I'm going to do a lot of work doing jingles and studio production. Right, I'm just going to show up. <laughs> yeah. And Steve goes, okay. He goes, so um, he goes, well, Steve said, realize that it doesn't matter how much harmonic knowledge you have or how you can play over these subs, you know, play these changes here, blah, 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 or how metrically modulated you can get. You're going to run into some guy that can't play a C major scale, but that can cut and paste. And he's going to get the gig. Mm -hmm. So, boom, that guy's dead, you know. Right. My students, whenever they come in, no matter what level they're at, I give them a little spiel. And I have to watch how I do it because I want this jazz major to survive. Mm -hmm. But I don't want them to think that they're going to come out of there being uh, playing a Wynton Marsalis' band. Right. Or some, you know... A lot of the bebop guys and stuff, which were, God, they were so godlike, right? Yeah. They've been dead for 40, 50 years, you know. Mm -hmm. Those gigs aren't there. So I'm, I keep telling my kids, there's guys my age that are real dark about the future of music or creative music, call it whatever you want. I am in no way that way. I think like every time before, something is going to come up and it's going to be creative and people will, will do something. They'll run with the ball. I don't think it's healthy to look at old styles of music and try to hold on to them forever and keep them alive and make that your way of making a living or <laughs> committing your life. To, I don't think it's healthy. Right. And I think it's egotistical. Why should 
the music I love or the music my dad loved or whatever, why should I think that that music is going to stay on top of the heap and be adored by people forever? It's never happened before. Right. So why would it happen now? You know, so I keep telling my guys, it's on you to create the new stuff. Mm-hmm. But do it. Don't just sit around. Everybody copies from before. That's how we all learn, right? Right. A lot of these bands that I really dig, part of it is just sonically. I like hearing the sounds that were the sounds of hipness when I was in college. Fender Rhodes, Wurlitzer's uh, analog synths. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wah-wah pedals. I mean, I love that stuff. I truly do. But I like it. I like those sounds being played by uh, by Knower or, right. or uh, Snarky Puppy or yeah, Jake or Collier. Donnie I mean, McCaslin these quartet or like, yeah, yeah. These cats are like you're gonna some ninety year old asshole. The guy's gonna tell me there's no future. These right. guys gonna play, please. Yeah, killing us. What Snarky Puppy's doing is what I thought was gonna happen. In about 1980. Wow. I really did. Because we were coming out of, I was not a bebop guy. I came up with this big band kind of thing, large ensemble sounds, mm-hmm. lower tune drums because of that. And then all these R&B guys. And then like Bonham and Mitch Mitchell and, you know, those kind of drummers. Yeah. To me, they're all equal. There's, nothing was superior to it. But then there's these other guys. All they would do is listen to the Blue Note guys. Hmm. And they were great. But personally, that sound wasn't the sound I dug. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't, it wasn't my thing. I didn't like it so much. So it's not that I disliked that music, but that to me, even then, was kind of old, you know. And so I was drawing from, the, I was taking the improvisational part in the fast playing that was offered by the boppers. Mm-hmm trying to figure out how they did that, you know. And guys like Max Roach and Philly Joe and the musical melodic senses that they had, Mel Lewis's time and sound and and all that. So I'm I'm pulling from that, but but to just want to be a, a, I I call it jazz Nazism. Mm -hmm. And it it is present in many different generations. I mean, especially especially mine. I, I have kind of not severed relations. I just don't like hanging with cats that want to live in the past like that. Mm-hmm. I just, I never have. I, I never like well, that. I think there's a, there's a new younger brand of, of jazz Nazism that's practiced by people in my generation and even younger. I'm 36. Um, but not, not so much that they're looking to the past, but that they have their blinders on as, as far as I'm only going to play jazz. I'm only going to play creative, original improvisational music whatever that sounds like uh, and just forsake all other types of uh you know music it's not that they won't play it but they'll look down on it they're like yeah i gotta do this wedding gig i'm making five hundred dollars right i'm still gonna complain about it Um, i got you man and see that's the kiss of death for them yeah i mean you know that that's part of my teaching gig is if i run into a student like that i'm a very I'm not like a disciplinarian strict guy. I screw around with them a lot. I like them to feel comfortable and, I, you know, use stupid, dumb humor and stuff. <laughs> but on certain moments, like something like that, I'll talk to a guy more privately yet and say, look, man, if you really want to do this, be practical. Because, you know, it's, and it's not even that you're not good enough. Think how many guys you know individually or I know individually that are qualified to play on some of the baddest bands there are, right? Yep. But they're not doing it, are they? Are they? There's right. one cat that gets those gigs. It's again, it's you can compare it somewhat to classical music. For somebody to study and get a job with uh, the Oregon Symphony, or you know, some big Philharmonic, thousands of people want that one chair. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is with jazz now. I've I've discovered. Uh, for one year, I taught at University of Washington, which is in Seattle, about three hours north. My band, the keyboard player that I use, is named Mark Seals. He's the head of the jazz department. He wanted me to come up for a year to teach up there because they were between 
getting a, a regular full-time guy. And I felt, okay, I'll go up every other week because I could get gigs in Seattle. I have in-laws up there, blah, blah, blah. And I had a really great drum student up there that I would see at two-week intervals. And one week I came in and I said, how's it been going? He goes, great, really good. And he said, I said, wonderful. He said, yeah. So we had, uh, my, my band had five shows last week and six the week before. I'm going, God, that's great. And he goes, yeah, it was pretty good. He says, we're going to have to cut back, though. And I went, what? And he says, well, we, you know, we don't want the music to get stale. So we're just not going to play for a while. And I, I, it was this flashing light. I went, wait, we got to define something. You told me you wanted to be a professional musician. What does that mean to you? And it's totally different than what I, how I define it on my old model. He's, he had a day gig working at Kobos or Starbucks or something. He had, he had to find an, another money source. He graduated like the following year from when I saw him. So he was almost done with school. And uh, so he was prepared to have a professional music career in which that wasn't his profession. <laughs> so the definition is, is something that needs to be discussed. Mm -hmm. If you want to be professional quality, have the abilities of a great professional player uh, and do it like kind of, a, I'm not saying it as an insult, but like a hobby kind of player where you don't do it to support yourself. Mm -hmm. Great. That's fine. But if you think you're going to support yourself playing music, my main message has always been learn how to play a trillion styles, learn how to play everything and learn how to not look like you're pissed off playing it. Right. Like you were talking about looking down on it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's total it's stupidity. Yeah. Uh, there used to be some of the guys I hung out with. I, I won't say that it's a universal thing because I hope not. But some of the jazz guys I hung out went, hung out with when I was younger, when you would talk about Nashville, I'm talking 70s at that time. Mm -hmm. so, oh, yeah, yeah, cowboy music or holy roller music or whatever it was called. There was this kind of a condescending thing about it. And luckily, this is another thing you get from the road. You travel around and you hear musicians in different parts of the country. I start hearing those boys down there. Yeah. Get it. Or cats in Dallas. Yeah. Went to North Texas and then just stayed, you know. I mean, these guys are incredible, but especially the Nashville guys. If you get into what Von Olin's talking about, about playing some time that feels good and supporting people, mm -hmm. making other people sound good. Yeah. Being consistent. All, you know, just all those the sound, especially, and being able to play very, 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 very simplistically mm -hmm. for a five-minute period, and, and 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 have the ability to edit yourself and not do that stupid lick you want to do. You know that kind of junk. Yeah, those cats are bad, bad, bad people. Yeah, but if you, you know, I know a lot of jazz guys. I make my best students every now and then, maybe once a term, a couple times a term. I'll bring down some. Uh, I don't know, steely damn thing or something. You know, just the simplest of beats and just make them play with that track in front of me. Mm -hmm. And most of them, will, they'll start smiling because they realize, oops, I want to, oops, you know. Yep. They see the ones that I worry about are the ones that don't notice. <laughs> but, but, you know, those are the things that you, you have to realize if you want to be a professional player, you, you better be diversified and you better know how to do a lot more stuff than just play drums too. I mean, anymore, you're, you got to stay up on your tech stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things that's changing so fast now. You uh, put up a, a Facebook post a week or two ago uh, regarding the, the closing of Jimmy Max, which was a, a long revered jazz club in Portland, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to I wanted to read this quote and and just uh, get you to expand on it a little bit because I I just love it. Um, it says, as I read posts about the end of Jimmy Max, I must say that 
it isn't the end of the world for jazz music in Portland. It's just another in a long line of the many clubs that feature jazz music that have come and gone. Here are a few names from the past. The Hobbit, Ray's Helm, Chuck Steakhouse, Jazz to Opus, Jazz Quarry, Cousins, Barbados, and you go on to name like a dozen others. Uh, and you say, uh, this was just another temporary home of jazz and other styles of music. Jazz music is much bigger than one club and will survive the passing of this one business. Fellow jazzers, let's create new and better places to create some happening music. I read that and just smiled and I was like, I was applauding in my living room. I was just clapping Ow. at my computer. Um, because I remember, you know, in Kansas city when Jardines closed down and, you know, there are lots of examples of kind of a, you know, a jazz, uh, headquarters in a city shutting down and a bunch of people wringing their hands and freaking out, but jazz goes on. It survives. Live music survives. Um, so in, in, in the wake of Jimmy Max, what are you thinking? Uh, how, how are you thinking about, you know, the future of, of live music in your area? Well, I don't want to be negative. I'm trying to be honest. Mm -hmm. As I look at it, and this comes from discussing with, with the locals, you know, I don't see uh, what is going to fill the voids of all these different places. Jimmy Max was the last of maybe just in the last two years, I bet there's been a dozen little venues that had music and sometimes jazz that have come and gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I, like I mentioned earlier, when I moved back here, part of the reason it was comfortable was because there were so many places to play. Portland's, I don't know if you've been here, it's not a very big place. I never have. In the 70s, it was much smaller, yeah. And there were 20 clubs that had jazz in them, not mm -hmm. just music. No cover charges anywhere. You could go out and hear original music of free music, fusion music, like Jeff Lorber's band, Tom Grant's band, a whole bunch of that kind of stuff. Bebop guys, straight ahead, big bands, everything. Mm-hmm. And it stayed in this weird bubble. Guys would come through like after I moved back, my road buddies from the other big bands, when they'd come to town, I would take them out on a Tuesday or Wednesday and go to six clubs <laughs> with burning bands and people and, you know, a lot of people in the audience. And they're going, what? You know, they were guys from New York and Chicago and Atlanta going, God, what is this? And it was really a weird bubble is all it was. Mm -hmm. I want to... I mean, there's some hip people out here, but not everybody's enlightened, you know. It's just a storm, you know. So if you look at it through that lens, and if that is when things are happening, it'll never happen again. Right. Because that music, you know, like, you know the phrase ghost band? Yeah. There's another way you can look at a ghost band now. It's music played for dead people. It's music, <laughs> you know, the people who love this stuff are gone, you know. So the ones that like it now are ones that are, are students of, of history. And if you dig jazz, you have to be an educated audience. You have to have had jazz history courses. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have some appreciation. You have to have some kind of harmonic knowledge, especially for what guys are doing now. Yeah, I mean, all this out... Uh, and, and, you know, 17, 8, going to 5, 4. People aren't sitting there doing this to that music. So they have to have an intellectual connection. That means they have to be educated. Cut down the audience that much more, you know. Right. So to the point of what's going to happen in the Portland metro area, there what has happened here, the consistent work is now jam sessions. I don't know what it is where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy named Ron Steen, great drummer, he used to play with Joe Henderson and a bunch of other guys. For years, he's been the the king of jam sessions. Sometimes right. have four or five a week in different places, hmm. and he's he keeps the flag going or the torch going. He's a tremendous asset, wonderful cat, great player. Club owners figured out, I'll hire a trio and underpay them. Mm -hmm. and not advertise and people will come because they want to sit in and they'll email other people who will go down and everybody's going to buy something 
So I'll get 30 people to play for paying three. Right. That's going to stay, right? Yep. <laughs> Club owners or whatever you want to call them, but most of them aren't stupid. Right. So th- to the idea of, of these sit-down gigs where you stay in the same place for a long time, that's pretty much a dead thing. You know, mm-hmm. my daughter's, how old are you? 36. Okay, she's like a year older than you. She remembers when, when she was little how I, I, I would split about 8 o'clock and she would go to bed and my wife would put her to bed because I just worked every night. That's never happening again. Right. I think. But the outlets for all these young monsters that are here in town, which is an ever-growing thing, it's not that there's no new talent. There's tons of talent. Mm-hmm. They're... Where we're going to play, young and old, is a thing that's trying to be uh, hashed out. Now, two years ago, I think, uh, a tenor player decided he was tired of bitching and hearing everybody bitch about how the scene was just falling apart. So he tried to start a jazz co-op. And we had, uh, I went to like two, maybe three of the meetings. It was at a time when I was traveling quite a bit, so I couldn't do a lot of them. And man, at first, I, mean, I think there was like maybe 40 people or so plus that showed up at this first thing and guys get up and talk and it's great. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. But then the sausage part starts, you know, <laughs> to make it. And it's it's a bitch trying to find a venue, trying to, do you want to be nonprofit? Do you want to be whatever, all these different things. We had people coming in from the union to give suggestions. Uh these guys were really trying to get this off the ground. They found a piano store that they could have concerts at every now and then. And uh, it kind of went for a while and then it just fell apart. Mm-hmm. And one guy that came in that was into these kind of, had, had a lot of experience around the country, he said, most likely this won't work at one of the early meetings. Mm-hmm. He says, because it, it'll, the interest and the commitment will just drop off. But if you want to do it, do that. Well, he, he was right. No, I don't think that that means that it can't happen again. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is the best hope. The other thing that seems to have changed and is a positive thing to, to be able to do are uh, like house parties and stuff. Yeah. It's away from the clubs. I don't think the clubs are where it's at. I don't even think clubs are where it's at so much with uh, music that's not jazz necessarily. I think there's a little more DJs and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because jazz clubs specifically, like the the business model, just doesn't seem um, it doesn't seem sustainable because it seems it seems like so many jazz clubs, even the big name jazz clubs, are dependent on really high ticket prices or cover charges, uh, you know, drink minimums, overpriced food that's usually not very good, um, and it's like you know people it's 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 kept in this little in this little precious box where, you know, I don't really want to go. I, I, I stopped, I, I stopped going to those kind of places. Cause I was like, I, I, I love the music that I'm going to see, or maybe I didn't even like the music that much, but you know, even if I want to go see, you know, one of my friends play or some big name that I'm really interested in seeing, I don't want to pay, you know, a 25 or $30 cover charge. I don't want to spend another 25 or 30 on two drinks. Um, <laughs> it shouldn't have to be that expensive. <laughs> No, I agree. That's why I think it's another thing that's going to pass into the fe- into the past. I mean, it's. <clears throat> but I, I I I wish I could say what I know what, what's going to replace it. I know something will replace it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Like like I mean, I really do believe creative souls need an outlet. I yeah. mean, it's not something they want to do; they have to do it, and so you get enough people together, but. I mean, you're a musician and you're a drummer, so you got two strikes against you as far as organizing anything, right? As far as what? <laughs> organizing anything. <I'm, laughs> right, right. Well, the worst thing to do is have a jazz guy own a jazz club. Oh, God. Right? Yeah. I mean, it just, there was a great place here in town that was owned by, run by a piano player. It was a wonderful place to play, but he found out pretty quickly that the, the, the hazards and hassles of, of running a restaurant and a bar are just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Wants to do that, he's going to have to start paying less to the musicians and do all this stuff that he was fighting before he went in, you know. Right, right. It's very, uh, 
I think turning a profit on a restaurant is hard enough without that profit dependent on getting people who like jazz in the door. <laughs> Absolutely. And the problem, like, uh, the problem that happened in this town, and I must say partially because of Jimmy Max, is that they didn't, they decided they weren't going to help with any kind of promotion. It was all on the musician. And, uh, there was no guarantee for musicians. It was a it was a glorified door gig. I mean, to be honest about it, compared to these other times where you had a, a salary, you were paid at the end of every week or every night, and you just it wasn't contingent on anything. Um, so you know the, the that's what I think that concept of of the house party is is cool and can work. For me and for a lot of other drummers, house parties aren't the most fun thing to play because I like to play dynamically. I love playing quietly. I really do. But I like to blast also. Yeah. And you got a, a, some guy's got a really cool pad, you know, it's just <laughs> buddy. So there's, there are limitations to that. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you, whether it's the house party thing or, or some other medium, some other type of venue, some other type of event. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to jazz getting out of the jazz clubs. It has to. It has to. This was something I, I think that's been around probably in all as music has, has, has evolved through the years. My dad used to tell me his dad's music kind of bored him, and he wanted to do something new, like twenties in the twenties and stuff like that. Um, my dad, I wanted to do different stuff than my dad, you know, this kind of thing where you, you really want to try to create something new. But a lot of times when you do that, you make the mistake of not including the audience in it or include or thinking about what the audience or an audience might enjoy. So we had a great band here in town called Big Bang. It was all original music, six piece group. Really cool. We were playing with sequences. We started right about the same time Steps Ahead did, mm. independently working that way. They were a little bit better, maybe. But, <laughs> but anyway, we, we had some really incredibly cool music. We were all writing really, really great. And we had a small following that was intense. But the music, we were a little full of ourselves. But I still look back at it and go, at that time, this was the stuff that was cutting edge. We were really trying to push sincere music, you know. Mm-hmm. My old man came out to see it. He was a real smart, smart ass. And uh, <laughs> he, he listened to it. He was, I never could find a better supporter. He was hugely supportive, but very honest. And like I mentioned, his, he liked to jab you a bit. And so he listened to a set of this band. He knew everybody in the band. He'd come out to see us play in different groups. And I came out on the break, and I knew he was going to say something. I could just see it on his face. I said, what do you think, Dad? And he goes, well, he says, you know, I love his way. You you know, great musicians. He goes, you know what that music is, though? I went, no, what is it? He goes, it's hippopotamus music. And I went, he goes, yeah, it's music that's played by hippopotamuses and enjoyed by hippopotamuses. (laughs) And I, I knew it in the moment that he was right. But I didn't want to talk about it, you know. <laughs> and so I passed that on to, to young cats now that are doing this stuff. Branford Marcellus came to U of O last year, I guess it was. And he was talking about this. You know, you can, you guys can get together and rehearse and get all this original music and have all this extremely sophisticated harmony and, and uh, rhythmic structures. And you can play it for the same seven people every night if you want. That's all you're going to do. Uh, and he's painfully, in my opinion, absolutely correct. Yep. Why should you? I remember our band, Big Bang, we would play some stuff. And just to, if you would end up at the same time the sequence did, I'm, I could, we couldn't wear headphones because everybody wanted to jack up their sound. And by that time, the click would be, I'd be bleeding, uh. you know, in the monitor mix. So I had to watch. I had a bouncing ball on a screen. So I'm timed up, and sometimes there's no sequence going for like 64 bars, and it's all on me to watch this thing. And then when the tracks would re-enter, you'd have like seven tracks along with six cats. And if it wasn't together dead on, 
it's at least just at best going to sound sloppy, you right. know. But we we'd get done with these things and we'd just done it so great. Everybody played great solos and it was so wonderful. And you look out in a dedicated listening audience and they're going, oh. you know, they didn't care. <laughs> right. And right. and I remember guys getting off the stage, one of our members would go, these, these peasants. And he was serious. Oh, I went, peasants? Oh. Wait a minute, we need a band meeting here. You know, <laughs> so we had one. We had one. We decided uh, what we wanted to do with this, you know, because we were going to run into that kind of reaction a lot more than we were going to be adored by uh, people as much as we thought we should be adored. Yeah, yeah. Got to watch it. Yeah. And it, again, it's back to if you want to make a living, if you want to be a professional musician, you want to be a working drummer, mm-hmm. learn how to play all sorts of stuff, and don't be condescending. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you you brought up the the, the jazz audience concept because people talk all all the time about the jazz audience being small. Like you you literally might be playing for seven people, but something that is not talked about very often that that uh, I didn't really think about either until you mentioned it is that a lot of times it's not just a small audience; it's the same audience, it's the same people, the same individuals showing mm-hmm. up. To, to these gigs and right. at a certain point you know I speaking only for myself I was like I, I would like to play for other people oh, I, <laughs> as well I'm absolutely I totally agree with you and this is on, on a local level it becomes much more visible because right you see it but at the same time it's it's it goes through a metamorphosis that you don't see uh, because you you know you're seeing it every night or every mm-hmm. week these people are getting older they're getting grayer. All of a sudden, some guy's got a walker. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, he's dead. You know, I mean, it's it's a progression that happens. Yeah, and his kids aren't coming. <laughs> Absolutely, that, that's 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 very very true. I play with this one band. Uh, it's called the Stan Kenton Legacy Orchestra, mm-hmm. and uh, we've played at places where nobody will show up at a clinic, a free clinic with a twenty piece band. You'll have an audience where the band is like. Almost uh, outnumbering the audience, this kind of thing. Right. And some of these cats in the band get really, really angry about this, and they they you know they take it personally and they blame it on the band directors and this kind of stuff. That's not what's happening. The audience has changed. Mm-hmm. I played at a thing in Los Angeles uh, in October. It was a whole week at the uh, Los Angeles uh, Jazz Institute. That's a great thing. They do twice a year. They have different themes. It'll be, you know, it's all jazz, but it might be beboppers, it might be whatever. But there's always, every few years, there's a Kenton connection because so many of the LA greats live there. I started doing them maybe 15 years ago, and you'd play at a convention, you know, a ballroom, and it would be packed out all week. You're giving seminars and you know, all this kind of junk. Peter's comes down to this last one and you're on boards together and you ask, answer questions. And you'll probably have maybe 20 concerts through the week and they're all really well attended. And I used to go down about every two years, three years or so. And this time I hadn't been down in about five. And I went down and the crowd was a third smaller hmm. because, and the ones that were there, literally, if they had hair, it was blue or white. Right. And and most of them need assistance. I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. I never laughed at old people because I thought, of, but now that I are one, yeah. I laugh at it. I mean, it's just progression, and there's no reason to get sad behind it. You know, that it's the way it is. It changes. Yeah, it's nobody's fault. It's zero-body's fault. Yeah, and and it's it's ridiculous to think it's going to keep going. That's the other part. That's where the egocentric part comes in. Why do you think your stuff is so hip? Especially if you don't do anything to embrace a, a regular audience, you, you get play all this stuff. Why do you think people will dig it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and really, you you'd have just as much of a right as anybody to to have that mindset. I mean, you you are a Stan Kenton alumnus, playing in that band, playing that music, launched your career. So you know, I don't think anybody could blame you for wanting to hold on to that and wanting to keep it alive as long as possible. But at the same time. You you know the the thirty years since you left that band or forty years or however long it's been forties you've, you've you've gone on to do many many other 
types of gigs, many other types of music. Um, right, exactly. That's why, I mean, I just, a couple months ago, I backed out of that band. I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to play it, playing it anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, well, that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> I don't want to be involved in that mindset. I really don't. I don't want to be... I don't want to be guilty by being associated with it. I don't want to be considered that way because I'm not. I I want to go forward. I, I just want to go forward. I don't want to live in the past. Well, it was great talking to you, Gary. Thanks so much. And I, I really appreciate it. We can do it, Jazzers. We can bring new music to new audiences in new venues. We don't have to be boxed in by the old music and the old audiences and the old venues. I love talking with guys like Gary who are as committed to jazz as anyone but aren't interested in letting it atrophy by putting on blinders or constantly looking backwards. As always, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is coming at you next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>